Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, on March 23rd, there was an event that captured the imagination of the world and certainly the press around the world, and that was the the uh, grounding of the Ever Given, a 220,000-ton Japanese-owned container ship, which lodged itself in the Suez Canal from uh, March 23rd until Monday, March 29th, a period of 144 hours, closing one of the busiest and most important waterways in the world, the Suez Canal. And uh, we're going to talk about that event, but in a larger context of what these uh, international connections mean to us as a society. Um, And we have with us, I think, a a true expert to take us down a path of really understanding uh, what this incident means. Uh, So I'm really looking forward to talking today to Zachary Carabell. Uh, And Zachary is the founder of the Progress Network. He is a columnist, widely written in the Washington Post, Wired Magazine, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Politico, The Atlantic. He's a regular guest on CNBC and Fox TV. Uh, Columbia educated, Oxford and Harvard. He is a writer on history, economics and international relations. He is an author of 13 books. Uh, one of which includes Parting the Desert, The Creation of the Suez Canal, which came out in 2003. He is the host of the podcast, What Could Go Right? An incredible thinker, historian, analyst, uh, Zachary Carabell, someone I'm really looking forward to talking to, Tyler. Me too, Peter. And I am really looking forward to looking at this, uh, looking at the Suez Canal through the the years looking back on it and looking at that period of time of the the mid 1800s when so much was going on uh it reminds me a little bit of what we might be on the eve of here on the american shoreline uh with all that's going on around uh our shores here uh planning for climate change and sea level rise so this will be a i think a really rich conversation i'm really excited for it well the suez canal tyler as you mentioned in the late 1800s and just in the introduction let me get some of the facts on the table that we'll be talking about the suez canal was opened in 1869 it was created um really and driven by a frenchman named ferdinand de lesseps who formed the suez canal company in 1858 When this waterway was constructed and opened in 1869, it was considered to be a symbol of progress and a a way to unite the world, the East and West. Great hope in the transformative uh, implications of this waterway when it was constructed in 1869. Uh, The Suez Canal links the Mediterranean Sea and the Red Sea and was largely, I believe, and our guests will help us understand this history, uh, operated, owned and operated by French and uh, British interests until it was nationalized by Anwar Sadat in 1956. Uh, so the, the Suez Canal has uh, continues to be a critical waterway around the world. Its recent blockage for 144 hours was said to cost the world $10 billion a day. We'll find out about that. Um, So that's the subject of the show today. And uh, I'm just 
dying to dive into it. Well, I'm sure everyone out there is too. So uh, let's hear from our sponsors and then get into the interview. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, Zachary Carabal, thank you for taking time out of your day to join us on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Peter. Well, Zachary, I'm... Uh, I was wondering if you might help us understand, uh, we tried to lay out a little bit of the facts in the future, but in your book, Parting the Desert, the Creation of the Suez Canal in 2003, can you tell our audience a little bit about the creation of the canal, and in particular, what was hoped to be gained by the development of this basically highway of water? That's a good expression, highway of water. I like that. Um, So just quickly, a, a fact check moment, you know, I hate I hate doing this, but just for the sake of, so we understand the whole picture, it was actually Gamal Abdel Nasser who nationalizes the canal uh, in 56. My apologies. Uh, in, a, in a moment of like efflorescence of Arab nationalism and we're going to own our own future, which then of course Anwar Sadat inherits uh, in, in the 70s after Nasser's departure. So to go back before we go forward, as you ask, um, canal building had been a human thing for thousands of years. You know, the idea that you can dig a trench from one waterway to the other, and the water will, as water does, flow from point A to point B it is not as complicated as the superconductor or brain surgery. I always wonder what brain surgeons refer to when they want to talk about something <laughs> being particularly complicated. Not rocket science, so, I think. That's right. And then the rocket science. Yeah. So canal building had been around. There's some evidence that there had been a rudimentary canal of sorts, even in pharaonic times, thousands of years ago, although not a completely connective 120-mile ditch, which is what the Suez Canal is connecting, as you said, the uh, eastern Mediterranean with the Red Sea. But the idea of modern canals and the idea of massive human earth projects as, as something that could be done quickly and dramatically is really a 19th century European technological moment where the fusion of human ingenuity and machines and being able to manipulate the physical world marries to some degree these grandiose notions of human progress, mm. which were prevalent in the mid 19th century. And again, I don't, I, these are all huge generalizations, right? That the Chinese build the Great Wall of China over hundreds of years long before this. So human beings have wanted to manipulate the physical world as long as human beings have looked at the physical world. But this idea of progress, right? That we are going to create a world of endless advancement of human prosperity, of human longevity, of trade, commerce, and of global connectivity 
is, is what animates the building of the canal, which I think is a little, sounds a little um, foreign to contemporary, somewhat more jaded, somewhat more cynical ears, you know, that the, the idea that people really believed that they weren't just making money and making trade, but they were also making progress is, is ineluctably bound up in the idea of the modern Suez Canal, the funding of the modern Suez Canal in the, in the 1850s, and then the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869. Zachary, how did people see the world back then in the 1850s? I realize the technology now exists to, to dig a big ditch. Uh, we, we obviously are familiar with the Civil War and the great railway lines and and logistics and the telegraph. I mean, it's just an incredible period of time. But was the world feeling smaller? Uh, when I saw that big ship in the Suez Canal, the world felt small. Uh, the ship felt huge. But man, we're moving things around. Um, how when the when this when uh, the Suez Canal was approached, what were people thinking about the size of the world? Was it kind of still infinitely large? And was there kind of an infinite amount of resources to exploit? I'm just, you know, frame that up for us. So I think when when the people who, who originate the idea of the canal, and a lot of this comes from a Frenchman named Ferdinand de Lesseps, who was, I suppose, in the mold of a wannabe entrepreneur in the 1830s and 1840s. He was a man in search of a plan who found a canal. And he wanted to inscribe his name on the, the future of the planet, and he wanted his name to be inscribed on history. And he succeeded in both of those things in, in, a, in, in a way that's unusual. But he was also animated by this culture uh, in France in, in the sort of early to mid 19th century that really talked about the world as, uh, as, as sundered. And that one of the reasons for the conflict between the East and the West, or between Europe and Asia, or between even male and female, was that the planet itself wasn't perfectly set up in order to unlock the potential of the human race and the potential of the physical world. And that canal building and railroad building and all these things were, were, were mankind's way of setting right what had been either incomplete or wrong. And they, they talked about this in terms of medical advancements and learning about disease, right? So it's all of a part, and canal building is just one. And in, in, in terms of how the world felt, people have been, you know, sailing around the world since Vasco da Gama and the 16th century, but distances were in years and months, mm -hmm. not in days, hours, and weeks. So it took a long time to get from point A to point B. It took a long time to get from point A to point B in the continental United States or even throughout Europe, which people have been going back and forth with for centuries. And to get from Europe or to get from France or England to India or Asia uh, was a many months long process of going around the Cape of Good Hope and into the Indian Ocean and, and, and then from there. So the world was big in that sense, but you had this human drive to make it smaller hmm. or to capture not just space but time and and canals particularly the Suez Canal was a way of doing that because by connecting the Mediterranean to the Red Sea you eliminate that whole journey of thousands of miles around the Cape of Good Hope and and even with the birth of the steam engine 
around this time, a little bit before, uh, you're still talking of a differential of you know a couple of months versus a couple of weeks. And that's a big deal. Indeed. And I think that we are talking about this period in the late 19th century to the early 20th century. Let me tick off a couple of the connecting uh, projects that occurred during this period. The Suez Canal is inaugurated on November 17, 1869, so within a few years after the American Civil War. The American Transcontinental Railroad is connected in Utah in the same year of 1869, about six months earlier than the Suez Canal, May 10th, 1869. The transatlantic cable, which allowed communications between Europe and the United States instantaneously is 1858. And the other great canal that we all know about, the Panama Canal, is 1914. And what you're suggesting, and I think in your remarks here, is that at this period of uh, physical engineering technical capacity to connect the world, these early steps toward globalization, um, those projects, which are, you know, literally the Suez Canal is building a ditch. It's a high, it's a waterway, but it's 120 miles long. And but we in we we inculcate these projects with a significant level of social political uh, optimism that these events, these physical connections are going to lead to hope and progress and prosperity. And I'm wondering is, as these projects were conceived, is that a fair description of what people said they would do? And then I'd like to talk about, did it turn out that way? So you are totally right, Peter, that that's how they talked about these projects. They talked about them as, as not just engineering, but as metaphysical living examples of human progress, and that it was gonna, it was just gonna unlock everything. That the world was gonna be made better by virtue of the railroads and the canals and and. Uh, dredgers and 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 earthworks and you name it and if you're going to judge solely by the growth of global trade and the connectivity of goods services and people moving around the world uh, in many ways these projects lived up to their advanced billing right they were they were every bit as transformative as the hyperbole of the rhetoric would suggest hmm. uh whether or not that benefited everyone equally is a whole other question because it is clearly true that the rewards of that connectivity were not at least in real time universally shared and if anything you know the experience of egypt in particular this is a canal funded in part by the ruler of egypt who thinks that by joining hands with the french that not only would east and west or in this case you know, europe and, and the middle east be united in, in a common endeavor to build a better future, but that Egypt itself would be vastly enriched, made more powerful, become an, an imperial or powerful state the way it had been thousands of years before. And that so did not happen. Within 10 to 12 years of the canal's opening, the ruler of Egypt um, had been removed. The state of Egypt had been placed in kind of a receivership, financial receivership to the British government. And basically, Egypt is then taken over by the English in one form or another for the next 80 years. Hmm. And, and you could play that story with uh, 
you know, parts of India, parts of Asia, sub-Saharan Africa, also huge railroad building craze north to south in Africa. So the benefits of this connectivity and the growth of trade and the growth of global commerce and the movement of people in, in no way was equally dispersed. Right. It, 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 not only are the benefits of these connective exercises uh, unevenly distributed, I wonder whether the when you strip away the notions of progress, the the hope and the connectivity being leading to greater peace, when you strip those away, what we're talking about here is is money. We're talking about infrastructure that is going to produce wealth and that these connectors are as much disruptors and creators of tension as they are creators of unity. And the example I would use is in one of Tyler's favorite subjects during the Civil War. One of the early objectives of the North in during the Civil War was to control the Mississippi River and the battles along the Mississippi and the battles in Vicksburg to control these transit corridors, which is our which are sources of power and prosperity. So when you look at connections like the Suez Canal or the Panama Canal or other globalization connection projects, we're also creating competition for access to economic power, which leads to and and I don't know if it would be fair to say that the Suez Canal uh, or other projects like it contribute to international tension, contribute to war. Is that too, I'm not sure that's fair to say. What do you think? Um, they certainly become causes of conflict and war, but I'm not sure that they transform conflict and war, which has been going on long before for other reasons you know what i mean in that there the suez canal becomes a, a conflict zone and a place for powers to compete over who's going to control it and who's going to benefit same thing with panama uh, same thing with many of these projects but humans have been competing over one thing or another for centuries regardless so i think it's overdoing it to ascribe to these projects conflict that that would otherwise not have been there right human beings have competed over resources land trade routes um waterways this may have accelerated some of that and changed the specific dynamics of it right but i'm always a little wary of yeah the, wouldn't say the, rose, the rose tinted glasses about things were so lovely before and then right. the modern world came around and messed everything up yeah no i think it, I, I completely agree with that 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 these these assets these connective assets become the new forum of competition they don't create the competition but they create a new area of of the search for dominance over the asset itself um but what it does suggest is that there isn't anything intrinsically positive about globalization or connections or projects that we undertake to bring the world together, whether it's physically through transit uh, infrastructure or in the modern time, the Internet and the information age, which is a connecting system without a canal. I mean, 
there was a notion, I think, early in the discussion of the Internet that this particular connective device would bring the world together. People would have access to all of the information in the world, and there's going to be greater understanding and the sense of peace, hope, and prosperity was part of the early billing of the Internet. But there, and my, my thought is that there isn't anything intrinsic about these connections that leads to peace, hope, and prosperity or a more egalitarian or unified world. Um, what do you think of that as a historian? This, and why do we attach this notion, this hope, prosperity notion to these physical things? I don't get why, why. Why do we attach so much to these damn things? It's a, it's a really good uh, comparison, Peter. I once wrote a book called A Visionary Nation about American particular tendencies to have these utopian moments of we've found the perfect formula to peace and prosperity, which are inevitably followed by dystopian moments of disillusionment and despair. And the internet of the late 1990s, which was nothing compared to the connectivity we actually have now, but it was more of the peering over the advent horizon to what, what lay ahead, this belief in, as you said, it was going to unlock human potential, create endless wealth, allow for a kind of human connectivity disintermediated by government or society in a way that would unlock human potential is exactly the same animating spirit as the canal building and railroad building of the mid 19th century. And like that, it has that utopian moment always gives way to dystopian because human belief in in the utopia is as real as as unrealistic um but it's also the dystopia is is equally unbalanced these are neutral unlocking of potential that inevitably people use and then abuse and then learn how to use better and i guess to some degree all this in a really metaphysical way goes into are you a cup half empty or a cup half full person you know do you believe in net net some degree of you know things turn out better at the at the end than they than not or are you someone who really uh sees more of the 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 harm and destruction that's wrought and you can make a pretty credible argument in both directions but your observation about you know these things start with shiny new object all the hopes in the world and and often end in a much darker fashion i, I just think that to some degree, both of those uh, perspectives, the utopia and then the dystopia, are, are equally distorted. It's always a, a much more complicated model of both. You know, uh, when you were asking that question, Peter, I was thinking to myself, you know, if a Vulcan were to hear that question, they wouldn't, they obviously couldn't go with all of this connectivity kind of uh, uh, conjecture. They would just merely say that it's going to change things. This thing is going to change things. It's going to physically change the planet. There's a new way to go. There's a new road. It's a bypass, and it will be used, and it's going to have ripple effects. And that's all we know. Like, good or bad, that's that's the way it's going to be. Um, <clears throat> I'm curious, speaking of this feature that we can that now interconnects the, the, the planet in a new way, going back to when it was open, what was going through this thing in the mid-1800s uh, and then on into the turn of the century? Uh, how was the canal used uh, in global shipping? Were people moving through it? What, what was happening there? Yeah, it was mostly ships. Certainly there were people, but people movement was less important than goods uh, moving through the canal. And 
1869, when it opened, you still had some sailing ships, triple mast, large trans uh, oceanic sailing ships, but you wow. increasingly had steamships, um, which were part of the mix. And the steamships were uh, more rudimentary, but they were faster, they were more powerful. And the advances in steam technology were pretty rapid after 1869. So you you basically have faster, somewhat bigger ships throughout the late 19th century. You don't have the massive container ships that we now see, um, which are all a product of the mid mid 20th century onward. But you have a lot of a lot of ships and a lot of goods. Uh, the, the British had already taken over India and the subcontinent. They were setting up shop in coastal China. The French were moving into Southeast Asia, not to mention Africa, the Dutch were in Indonesia. I mean, so these trade routes between Europe and Asia uh, were already pretty vibrant even before the canal and the canal's opening just hypercharges that in terms of the volume of trade. And yes, it helps people get back and forth, but you know, even at the height, uh, there were less than a million English administrators and whatever settlers in india uh so it's not like there were so many people going back and forth so this was mostly uh um, goods i guess sure raw yeah. materials uh and i would love to to learn more about that but what i'm reminded of peter is our conversation with naval historian drakken eiffel yeah. and we were talking about this transition between the age of sail and the age of steam and he said like if you had been born 300 years before, you know, the 1830s, you could go to a vessel and pretty much understand it. And sail it. And sail and, and, and manage it. Yeah. And whereas you go an extra 50 years and you're looking at the ironclad era and it is like you wouldn't know what you wouldn't know you, how the, to all the rules it. like going into port. The tide had to be right. The wind had to be like all of a sudden just the approach to and, and what what the reason why Zachary I asked about the size of the world thing is because in the modern era, the world feels to me much more finite. Like there's a lot of human beings on the planet. We require a lot of raw material to sustain at least, you know, our American uh, lives. There is no frontier left Correct. on, the, on yeah. the planet really at this point. Yeah. I mean, we talk about the Arctic as being kind of this last uh waterway kind of frontier um where people are rushing in and taking advantage of the retreating ice but i i guess my question is uh i don't know if i even have a question can you comment on that <laughs> yeah i mean certainly the, the the legacy of the past 150 years is a planet that shrinks in the sense of the conception of distance you know i'm uh, many of us in a pre-pandemic era still marveled at you know you could get on a plane and 10 hours later be on the other side of the planet or 15 hours later be on yeah. the other side of the planet and in many ways that was disorienting because it was so rapid you didn't have time to adjust it wasn't like you spent a month getting going from point a to point b and getting used to it and even a sailing ship the between liverpool and new york in 1910 like the titanic uh, took days right it didn't mm -hmm. take weeks and months the way it had taken in the 17th century and then of course the internet and 
and telecommunications and that connectivity is just that same phenomenon on steroids. Uh, a much bigger question, of course, is that does that fundamentally change human conflict, our conception of things or not? Um, that's way beyond the purview of this particular conversation. But the idea of, of a world that gets smaller uh, and therefore, you know, you're, what you see is what you get is certainly part and parcel of the, of the quote unquote, the conquest of nature mm. in the late 19th and early 20th century. <laughs> Uh, Zachary, would it be fair to I would like to to see if this subject makes any sense? Could we discuss uh, the political fallout of the Suez Canal? Not it, maybe not in its specifics, but in the fact that this new connection had been made. Uh, are there derivative political implications in terms of power distribution or who controlled what? that can be fairly attributed to the creation of the Suez Canal? I think even if there had been no canal, it is likely that European expansion, which began in the 18th century, accelerated in the mid-19th and continued uh, into the early years of the 20th, was going to happen one way or the other. But part mm. of that expansion carried the impetus for these sort of canals and railroads. I don't know which is the chicken and which is the egg here, right. but the result of these projects, and I alluded to this earlier, was uh, the people who built them and the countries that sponsored them financially, primarily the Europeans, the Americans to some degree, starting in the late 19th century, particularly with the Panama Canal and, and the railroads, which you talked about before, they benefit. They benefit economically, they benefit politically. And the countries where these things were uh, often benefited not at all. Uh, so the canal is not the beginning of a new age for Egypt. It's basically the end of mm. one for Egypt. Wow, it becomes uh, kind of a client state, essentially. Right, and you could say the same about Panama, right? Mm -hmm. Which had yes. been, a, been an offshoot of Colombia and then becomes its own quote-unquote independent country, but not really. Same thing in Nicaragua, right? There was another canal idea that there would be a, a, a secondary canal through Nicaragua yeah. in addition to the Panama Canal, which becomes a reason for the United States to essentially take over the Nicaraguan government. So the promise of these is partly fulfilled uh if by partly you mean some people benefit hugely and others don't we'll never know whether the same dynamics would have been in place right even if these things hadn't been built yeah um i want to uh, take a shot at this uh i'm beginning to see in the press people writing about the implications of the ever given uh accident in the suez canal a ship that was 1,300 feet long, 192 feet wide, 20,000 container capacity, massive ship. And some writers are now starting to talk about the implications of this accident and what it might mean. And the, the question I have is, what story do you think we will tell through the lens of this incident uh, of the Ever Given? 
And is there anything interesting to say, or is it, if I can just be frank, a lot of bullshit to try to draw too much out of the it's fact like a that, really good meme. that this guy crashed a right. ship and it, 144 hours yeah. it clogged up a waterway? I mean, what really is the implication of that? Can you, what do you think is the story or the narrative that will be created out of this incident as a historian? So look, one part of this story is the small bore part, which is interesting regardless in yeah. that when you see pictures of this immense thing that human beings built, this 1300 foot towering ship of, as you said, 20,000 TEU containers and the uh, dredger, which was a big crane next to it trying yeah. to dig out, looking yeah. like a little toy, <laughs> right. a little toy. Thing it was striking. That, you know, I mean, it was a very cool set of imagery, right? It was yeah. like, wow, look at this. Um, one thing that, that did strike me, and I think is a, probably the more important story, but not the story that actually got told, is when I wrote the Parting the Desert book in 2003, uh, the canal was in a, was sort of a becoming a backwater. Uh, global trade was increasing massively, but it, it no longer necessarily was increasing commensurately, proportionally for the canal. And with the rise of these massive container ships, some of them couldn't even fit through the canal at the time, at the time, because the canal was expanded over the past 20 years to make room for these big ships. And uh, even though it took another, you know, it takes another couple of weeks to go around the Cape of Good Hope, with these massive ships, it, it, it doesn't necessarily matter as much. Um, mm. So the, the, the centrality of the canal had faded. Why this is such a big deal today is because between the time I finished the Suez book, which was again, mostly about history, China's rise re-transformed global trade yet again. And the link between Chinese goods and Europe or Chinese goods in the United States became uh, a whole new source of shipping volume. And the reason why this mattered, and I think, again, people might have viscerally keyed into this, but I don't, I didn't see this being a central part of the story over the past few weeks, is that it was very, I think, common a year ago when the pandemic hit and, and everything just shut, borders shut, trans, global transit ceased for people to think that's it, you know, this era of globalization is done, uh, the Chinese are gonna focus on themselves internally, Europe and the United States are in an in increasingly antagonistic relationship with China, and so we're gonna, we're gonna end this chapter of globalization. And what the crisis over this ship and the backup of billions of dollars of trade and all these ships kind of waiting to go through the canal should have alerted people to is, there is just zero way in which globalization as a as a way of describing the globalized supply chains the movement of goods and of people that is so not done <laughs> even in the middle of a pandemic right. you have a backlog of massive volumes of shipping in the canal because it's true that tourism ended you know, and business travel stopped because we could all do it via zoom and and connectivity in that way but goods and service goods just have kept going in fact the demand of goods is uh, anything has accelerated to some yeah. degree as people are moving out of the pandemic and that's why this this crisis actually revealed something about the world today hmm. 
Yeah, revealed that a I lot. think people maybe have, have sort of been very quick to say is over, but the sheer volume of stuff sitting there in the canal waiting to go through should have been a reminder of, you could say it's over, <laughs> but it ain't over. Uh, man, I've got a few questions after that. What First one is... Uh, what, how does climate change factor into globalization and and you know this i agree that it's not over and i mean there's just there's no interest um but clearly uh the exploitation of the planet pushing i mean you're you're you can speak to this in just much more uh, a much more edu- educated way than i can but it seems to me that uh uh, China and uh, corporations, not not just nations, but but corporations are uh, building, you know, like slapdash ports next to mineral deposits to quickly extract them so that they can turn them into iPhones and like moving stuff all over the planet, r- moving raw materials. And like, as I said before, it, like, I don't I don't believe that that is a sustainable practice is and and maybe it's not maybe we will change i mean i, I we talk about this a lot <laughs> on this show but uh do, do, is this is does globalism adapt through climate change are we taking globalism with us into the future oh if we knew the answer to that wouldn't we all be happier <laughs> humans uh look there there there's an old sort of saying of something will continue until it can't, which seems oddly syllogistic, but it's it's a reflection of things tend to go on until they can't go on anymore. And while it's tempting to say this can't continue, the fact is it clearly can continue. The question then is, at what point can't it? You're still seeing places like Pakistan and parts of Southeast Asia uh, and the Philippines, you know, they're building bigger ports and more ports because they have their own burgeoning middle class of hundreds of millions of people yeah. globally, it's several billion people. And the tension of global climate change remains that the most urgency about it tends to come from Europe, peripherally maybe the United States, uh, who no longer need the level of economic development to, to meet a middle class standard of living. And it can seem at times as if the more developed world is saying to the world that's still, whatever we call it, emerging, developing, burgeoning, mm-hmm. y- you can't do this. Right? I mean, I know people in Pakistan doing various forms of project development who say, look, it's not that we want to use coal, per se, to burn our power plants, but we don't, we're not set up to do solar in parts of the mountains because there's not enough sunlight uh, in a consistent basis. And where's the energy going to come from? Are we, are we supposed to just sit around uh, without electricity, internet, and, and running water just because a bunch of Europeans <laughs> set a carbon yeah. emissions target for 2030? And, and I don't think in many ways the climate community, I think the climate community gets that. I'm not sure anyone has really grappled with that reality. And um, on the more hopeful side, you have places like China committing itself whatever that means to being carbon neutral or zero emissions in 2050 right largely because their their internal pollution levels are untenable for 
domestic Chinese. Mm-hmm. Basically, until people, until the equation shifts domestically, where the where the domestic immediate harm seems much greater, things like global climate change are just going to be too abstract. You know, it took the Love Canal in the seventies for yeah. people to realize in the United States that oh wow, we're polluting our rivers. Well, the, it, it was interesting during the Beijing Olympics. If you'll remember, they had they had shut down a lot of factories in the region in order to clear the air up so the athletes could run and swim and do the things that they do. And in the press, there were photographs of the landscape and the surrounding mountains that you could suddenly see uh, because yep. China had had. And I think this is what you're suggesting. When people get a taste of the transformation that could be possible, uh, we might start to see a greater degree of action uh, as much as the Paris Climate Accord is a is a wonderful accomplishment on the international stage. It's not sim- It's not going to be the driver for massive transportation in and of itself. It's going to take this other experience to occur. And uh, Peter, you had the same thing going on in pandemic land, where yeah, in New Delhi, for instance, there were uh, as everything shut down in India on government mandate, people could suddenly see the Him- Himalayas right. from Delhi. And there were these pictures of like clear air, beautiful skies, and you could see the mountains. The flip side is for the several hundred million people being royally screwed by pandemic policies who couldn't basically go to work and were starving, like which which trade-off makes sense? Would you rather see the mountains or starve? And 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 honestly, I think people need to think in terms of those equations. What happened in China was at a certain level of economic development, people started going, hey, wait a minute, this is just not acceptable. My eyes are burning, I can't breathe the air. And um, it's basically, there has to be a turning point in Mm -hmm. in climate change where domestically people stop perceiving pollution as progress and start perceiving it as toxic. Interesting. Uh, But but usually that only happens at a certain level of development. 100%. I think it's widely stated, and I think this is true, that uh, environmental health and improvement in environmental conditions is a function of economic prosperity that you have to be able to afford it. And it's like you're saying in Pakistan or in developing countries that simply don't have the revenues to deflect that energy into uh, sort of restorative things, but are still trying to just get electricity and food to people. Uh it's the hierarchy of needs problem. You can't get to this greater environmental sensitivity until you've got the money and the thought space to do it. And it, 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 it I want to turn uh, attention to you because you're a historian, because you were uh, cover economics internationally. One of the things that we've started to see is a greater institutional investment in the transformation of the world economy away from carbon-based power. And, I, you know, BP and Shell Oil were just huge bidders on the offshore energy leases off of the Atlantic coast uh, to build wind powers. The wind power, the, the, the lease sales uh, were $400 million for the rights to construct wind towers off of the Northeast Corridor. Uh, so we're beginning to see companies moving in this direction. Bill Gates just comes, comes out with a big book on climate change now. International investment houses are starting to look seriously at uh, ESG investments or environmental and social justice kind of investment strategies. As an economist and as a historian, is this greenwashing or are you seeing or 
beginning to see a shift in economic resources and horsepower that are going to be transformative economically and perhaps beneficial to climate change. Is anything out there striking you about that topic? Well, also, I mean, I did write a book once about sustainability in business. I ran a sustainability-focused hedge fund for a couple of years, which I know sounds like an oxymoron, but wasn't. And uh, I'm actually a big fan of greenwashing because I think once companies start talking the talk, uh, their shareholders and the public tends to hold them responsible for walking the walk. Mm -hmm. That's a controversial and debatable statement. I'm just putting it out there as something to think about. Um, But they're also you know, following kind of the economics and the demands. I think what what's going on around climate in China is the most interesting and most I- illuminating and potentially the most hopeful of the conversations around this. I know it's very popular to um, be hostile and antagonistic toward China for all sorts of reasons, and some of those may be justified and some of them I don't think are. But what the Chinese government's doing domestically around pollution and around carbon is, I think, a good sign of uh, the, the goal should be to, to, to try to accelerate global development so that, as you just talked about in, in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, people then begin to perceive that less carbon intensive uh, ways of producing essential needs is in everybody's self-interest, every national self-interest and every individual self-interest and every corporation self-interest. Part of the reason why corporations have a self-interest in this now is because if you can control your input costs and also limit how much you need to, to, to buy for your inputs, um, the more control you have of your bottom line. So carbon intensive, production that requires oil or even certain stuff you need to dig up you're always vulnerable both to price and supply yeah if you can find ways to do that in a renewable fashion 3d printing or or less resource intensive ways of producing stuff you can control your input costs you control your cost of goods and 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 there's a productive capitalist output for that 100 percent I mean, in the Suez Canal example, the state of of Syria was rationing oil and gasoline because the the vulnerability of risk of the Suez Canal created this financial and economic crisis in that country because the supply was that vulnerable. Um, I I agree with you. And because all the pipelines have been, you know, semi-destroyed after nine years of civil war in Syria. Mm. Mm. And I think you're right about the transformative power uh, to convert to a less carbon intensive economy is going to be a function of the fact that it is cheaper and more reliable to use other sources of energy that are more locally uh, generated. And if you look at power production investment in the United States over the last five years, you're beginning to see more installation of wind and solar power than you are in any other form of energy uh, uh, production. And it's because it, the prices are starting to get to a point where it's just a better idea. Right. Uh, and we're seeing billions of dollars investment in the North Sea wind power industry. 30% of the power uh, consumed in, in Great Britain now is renewably produced. Um, and that's what I think is going to, and that the economics of that are, give me hope that at least in the power sector, uh, the idea of 
burning coal seems to me is one step above the cavemen getting sticks and building a fire. I mean, the notion of combustion as a way to reduce, reduce or produce energy is an archaic way of heating and generating power. Um, in fact, I think it's one of the few technologies that has survived centuries. And it's simply, I'm, I'm, you know, this is about Star Trek. You get on board the, the USS Enterprise on Star yeah. Trek, and nobody's burning anything. You know what I no, mean? They have I a mean, there is a, it's it's all about electron movement, and there's a lot of way to, ways to move electrons besides burning things. And I just think there'll be a day when we'll look back and they'll say, "Do you realize they used to dig up mountains of coal in Wyoming, put it on a train?" get it all the way down to Texas, put it into a power plant, burn it, and then have to deal with the fly ash waste toxic issue. It's going to seem of an absurd system. And look, it's already becoming, for most parts of the world, I alluded to Pakistan, where, where it is still the cheapest, most readily available. Um, but its costs are huge environmentally, and for most countries, China included, they are looking for alternate ways um, of... Of, of fueling what they're doing. The other thing that's going on, and we talked about this earlier, kind of the analogy of the internet and the canal, you know, these are connective tissues, one being a waterway, the other being fiber optic cables, that the more that that current wave of technology and connectivity increases, to some degree, the less resource intensive our economies become. Hmm. So services, doing a podcast, this conversation, is a very resource light process um, as opposed to making furniture. No and shovels yes, we're all needed. Gonna, we're still going to need furniture, right? But it may be that the Suez, the volume of traffic in the current Suez Canal, some of which is oil, a lot of which is stuff made in China heading to uh, Europe and made in you know, Thailand and made in the Philippines. It's not just China. Mm -hmm. That we may be at, at peak stuff. Not because the rest of the world isn't developing, but because the nature of our economic consumption uh, is just shifting away from from stuff. I, I have kids who are teens, and even in their lifetimes, I've noticed that um, you know Christmas comes around and and demands are digital and not material. So the only thing that is material at Christmas now or the, the faux boxes to house like the digital here, we bought you something online <laughs> and like, that's a, that's a transformation going on everywhere. So that in and of itself uh, augurs somewhat well in terms of climate. Interesting. And it makes me think uh, Zachary, uh, the, uh, that the ever given was sailing from Malaysia on its way to Rotterdam, as we said, with 20,000 containers of goods uh, manufactured in, in that uh, Southeast Asian region of the world. But the, the, the point you're making there brings to mind your recent episode on What Could Go Right, your podcast that you host, and the Canadian authors that you had on talking about the population growth of the world and the fact that the assumptions that the world is simply going to continue to expand and we're going to get to 11 billion and then 12 billion is fundamentally not true, that there is this transformation of our demand on the planet. And perhaps this is a, a potential pathway toward a more sustainable future. What do you think? 
Yeah, so again, that's part of the argument for peak stuff, right? That this this moment in the canal, we may be at peak stuff because not only is the population of the planet aging, uh, it's not being replaced. It is still being replaced in parts of sub-Saharan Africa and parts of Asia, uh, but the rate of replacement, i.e. the rate of actual population growth by virtue of new births, ha has declined radically and dramatically to the point where most population estimate, estimates haven't factored in just how many fewer births there are over the past 10 years, largely because when middle-class life becomes more prevalent and women are more educated and people are living in cities, uh, women cease to have so many children. And that's happened much more quickly in Nigeria and in Bangladesh and in Pakistan than, than people thought even 10 years ago. Uh, so the... I, I've often thought about this as sometime around 2050, between technology and just population contraction, uh, many of the issues of climate change, carbon and stuff, will almost ineluctably resolve themselves. Hmm. So we will have much better battery and renewable technologies and wind and you name it, cheaper, more prevalent, more widespread. And there'll be fewer people demanding fewer stuff. And, and a lot of the people who are still there will be older. And we know just observationally that the older you get, the less stuff you you tend to need, want, or consume. You, you sound so like the issue is more: can we get can we get through the next twenty to thirty years without destroying the ecosystem permanently? And there are plenty of people who say, "Nope, we can't. We're toast unless we radically, you know, I don't know, turn everything off and figure out a different way in the next ten years." Then the the pathway is is tectonically destructive. Um, and then, of course, there are others who feel like progress is being made, change is happening, uh, and, and the window is not getting narrower, but actually becoming more open. Do you put yourself in one of those groups? Look, I tend to believe that human history has been a neck-and-neck -neck creation between our unbelievable capacity to create and our uh, equally unbelievable ability to destroy but the fact that we're sitting here having the debate suggests that at least at a 5149 sense our ability to create has narrowly edged out our capacity to destroy that's neither uh i'll take that it debatable i'll take right, 5149 so, we're on the we're, we're leaning to the right side of the equation so i tend to believe that that's likely to be true in the future but as they say in the investing world past performance is no guarantee of future results so the fact that that's been true till now doesn't in any way suggest that it has to be true in the future. It just means that's kind of where I reside. And the reason why I created this Progress Network recently, which is the theprogressnetwork.org, um, that's an advertising for a free nonprofit site, so just so people know. And uh, that that future is unwritten, right? And I'm, I don't know what good we do ourselves by believing that uh, – that we're going to go to hell in a handbasket. So the other part of that question is uh, what can we do now to create the future that we want to live in, given that that future remains to be written. Wait and it's kind of up to all of us to, it's not like the end of the life of Ryan, where we always have to look on the bright side of life. It's just, <laughs> we are, I think all of us obligated to try to create that future. Well, look, uh, Zachary, uh, I know that we are running uh, out of time and there is still so much more. I wanted to ask you about uh, your another one of your books, uh, The Leading Indicators, A Short History of the Numbers That Rule Our World. 
Um, and I'm going to, I think I'm just going to save it, Peter, but, uh, man on in, in the coastal space, understanding our world, understanding climate change on the coast. Uh, we Peter run into so many, uh, uh, numeric, uh, models and, uh, expressions for that yeah. world and man Zachary I would I would have loved to yeah. have had the opportunity but let's talk about his new book too yeah Zachary can we please uh, and and if, if you still have the time and and the inclination we'd like to ask about the book coming out in May uh, in a couple months from now inside money Brown Brothers Harriman and the American way of power the breadth of subjects that you cover is immense can you tell us about your new book and also tell us more about the progress network when you get a chance yeah, so the new book kind of came out of two questions. How did money make America? And what's the current state of American capitalism? Told through the story of the oldest investment bank in the United States called Brown Brothers Harriman, which still exists as a partnership, did not the way Goldman Sachs and Lehman Brothers and Morgan Stanley go public in the 1980s, mm. and therefore never became too big to fail, but also remained kind of uh, a quiet presence in the financial world rather than a, a dominant public one and separate from this idea of paper money in the 19th century was a kind of like the canal building and kind of like the internet today its own human innovation that unlocked a lot of human potential and also created a lot of economic crises but i was also really interested in this idea of um what's a sustainable form of capitalism and the degree to which even in the financial world, which is not have doesn't have a lot of public favor these days, the idea of staying a partnership, not taking on risk that you can't afford, being kind of small c conservative, uh, particularly with money and, and finance, has a great virtue that our modern definition of stock market shareholder capitalism has disdained and somewhat downgraded, and that I think we need to re-examine. I mean, like if you if you really think capitalism is a destructive, benighted system, it's unlikely you'll like the book I just wrote. Right. But if uh, if you think there's something redemptive or or there there are alternate modes of capitalism that could be uh, where the rewards could be more distributed and greed could be uh, held in check. Some greed's okay, right? If it leads yeah. to creativity and speculation, of course. So that's where that book comes from, um, and, I, and I hope people will look at it with a with an open mind accordingly. It sounds like, and I don't know how much you want to, the book is coming out in May, it has not been released, but you can order it now on Amazon.com, Inside Money, Brown uh, Brothers, Harriman, and the American Way of Power. Sounds really interesting to me. It almost sounds like what you're suggesting is the old way is the new way that we've got to get back to this small c conservative capitalistic idea of sound management sound investment kind of thing and that we know how to run a capitalist economy in a way that is less risky and doesn't involve inventing things like credit default swaps and esoteric right. vehicles of finance that make no sense to anybody including the people who make them Correct. And I, you know, I don't want to be too black and white about it in that I think it's more about where the balance exists, mm -hmm. that the core of the financial world should be small seat conservative and the periphery should be risk taking, innovative, you know, bet it all, lose it all. Because you do need some of that as well. right? You, you do need the dreamers. You do need the risk takers. And if you have a world that's too dominated by the conservative, stolid bankers, you, you get no change and no innovation. It's a matter of where the 
where the balance lies. And in, in, in too many ways, the American capital system flipped that equation unhealthily, where the dominant portion was the risk takers will create crazy financial instruments and lever them up 10%, I mean, 10 times, uh, versus the more conservative, we're just going to invest what we know we can afford to lose. So I think it's it's a matter of the, the, what is currently the core should be the periphery and what is currently the periphery should be the core. Sounds like a fascinating uh, book. Go buy it now. Uh, pre-order it and it'll be out soon. Uh, and my, my plug for the Progress Network, which I'll do in go a ahead, minute please as we do wrap ahead. up, is, is, is basically what I just said before, but it's our responsibility to write the future and that we in a political media, even pop culture, have focused way too much on everything that's going wrong and not nearly enough on what's potentially going right. And that there are hundreds of really interesting thinkers, writers out there whose whose work points in a more constructive direction. It it doesn't mean that they're all optimists. It just means Mm -hmm. that they are not animated by outrage and they're more focused on solutions than hammering endlessly about problems. And then unless those voices cohere into some sort of meaningful, identifiable phalanx, they'll always be atomized no matter how prominent. So people that are part of this network are Steven Pinker and Fareed Zakaria and Tom Friedman and Eric Jolson and Andy McAfee and, you know, people who, you know, Amory Slaughter and uh, Diane Coyle. I mean, it's a, you know, it's, it's an interesting group and that's why I started it to try to make sure that if, if if things are going downhill fast, it won't be for lack of people warning about it. So that waterfront is pretty well covered. But if we're doing a better job than we think of either solving problems we've created or, or generating uh, human progress, we're not paying enough attention to that. And it may be to our detriment in our ability to actually make it true. That is really interesting. And I think there's a common theme here that I've picked up throughout the conversation we've had, this utopian versus dystopian dichotomy, this anti-polarization, anti-black and white, the nuance of issues, how we describe history in the past and how we project into the future is not one dimensional, but the true thinking uh, requires people uh, not of of identical persuasion or identical ideology, but who are thoughtful and engaged in the world and can handle complexity and nuance. And it sounds like the Progress Network and the people that you've put together is trying to create that foundation of different thinking in this highly polarized damn environment we're in right now, which frankly, I'm tired of hearing about it. Seriously. Well, thank you. That is a really nice concluding encapsulation of what I'm trying to do. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is Zachary Carabell, author, writer, brilliant thinker. Uh, I'm not going to list off all the books. Uh, Check out the latest book coming out uh, from Zachary Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman and the American Way of Power coming out in May 2021 look at the progressnetwork.org is that the correct uh url for that yep and uh follow him along uh zachary we couldn't be more thrilled and and privileged to have you on and spending this much time with us it was absolutely interesting conversation we thank you very much for uh being on the american tribe podcast thanks peter and thanks tyler 